0: This is an Impact Studios production from the University of Technology Sydney. Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following episode contains the names of people who have passed. The story you're about to hear starts in the year 1900 and draws on the colonial archive. Listeners are advised there may be words and descriptions that may be culturally sensitive and which might not normally be used in certain public or community contexts. Terms from archival material used in this podcast reflect the attitude of the author or the period in which the item was written and may be considered inappropriate today. This story also contains information about acts of violence that may be distressing.
1: I don't want to assume that you all know who Jimmy Gavner was or why he matters to me. He was a Wiradjuri and Wanarua man and a little bit Irish. In 1900, he was 25 years old. Jimmy has been described in many ways. A bush ranger, a serial killer, and even a freedom fighter. But none of these labels quite fit. Today, most people don't know who he is, let alone what he did. But there was a time when everyone knew his name. Because for a brief moment, his crimes paralyzed Australia. On an unusually freezing night in July 1900, Jimmy Governor, his brother Joe and their friend Jackie approached the Morby family home in Breelong, a small town on Camilleroy country on the western plains of New South Wales. Inside was a group of white women and children and outside Jimmy, Joe and Jackie were armed with a tomahawk, a heavy club called a Nullanulla and an unloaded rifle. There are different reports about exactly what was said when Mrs Morby opened the door. But what we do know is, what happened next? Mrs Morby was struck in the head and neck five times with the tomahawk. Her 14-year-old son, Percy, tried to stop it, but he was hit so hard his head was nearly severed from his body. Mrs Morby's 16-year-old daughter, Grace, escaped through the front window with her 21-year-old school teacher, Helen Kurz, They were chased and clubbed to death. 11-year-old Hilda was chased to a nearby creek and murdered. All told, five women and children died. The attackers slipped into the frigid night. The law wouldn't be too far behind them. And just like that, one of Australia's largest manhunts began.
2: Yeah, so this is the road that's going to take us in the main gate of Rookwood Necropolis. The sign here says Rookwood Cemetery, but when we enter it we'll see that it's called Rookwood Necropolis, and that word necropolis is a clue to the immensity of this cemetery.
3: So this is supposed to be the city of the dead?
2: It is, and it is the size of a city, and it's as heavily populated as a city. This
3: is Catherine Biber, a professor of law from the University of Technology, Sydney, and she's walked through this City of the Dead, Rookwood Cemetery, for years, all in search of Jimmy Governor, because she's had a hunch for a long time that there's a much bigger story to be told about his life.
2: So this is the area. We can walk in and have a look. There are some marked graves, but my understanding was that Jimmy Governor didn't have a headstone, and... So, somewhere in this scrappy bush, he's been
3: buried. Jimmy's case, and everything we still don't understand about it, has gotten under Catherine's skin. There's something about his story that does that to you. I'm Caitlin Sorry, a journalist and audio maker, and I've been following Catherine as she digs into the archives to trace the trail of Jimmy's violent murder spree. In this three-part History Lab series, we're pulling on the threads of one of Australia's great misunderstood stories.
2: You know, I started with the intention to undertake what I call the legal history of Jimmy Governor, and I've realised that it's probably uh, history of the making of Australia.
3: But I want to be clear, this isn't a true crime podcast. We're moving beyond the myths to learn what the Governor brothers, Jimmy and Joe, faced in both life and death, and what it reveals about Australia, about the start of our federation, our legal system, what happened in our prisons, a global body trade driven by race science and what their story tells us about black and white Australia. This may be the tale of a prison colony trying to become a country and the murder case that stood in its way. This is the story of The Last Outlaws. When did you first come across the story of the Governor Brothers?
2: I think it was when I saw the film The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, which was um, released in 1978, but I didn't see it till decades later. I was writing a PhD on Australian cinema, and that was one of my texts, and that film kind of stayed with me for a long time because I knew in some way that it was based on a true story and I was kind of shocked by that.
3: So first seeing the film to now, like how long has that been, do you reckon?
2: I would say 20 to 22 years. That's a long time. It's older than my children. <laughs> But I also felt like if this was a true story, it would be much more well-known than it is. I couldn't believe that it wasn't more well-known. And that's why I wondered, could it be true or could this be an extremely fictionalised, fantastical account of what really happened? So I wanted to know what really happened because I felt like if it really happened the way it's portrayed in the film, everyone should know this story. So I turned to the archives for answers.
3: So we know what happened on that fateful night. But how did we get there? To find out, we probably need to know who Jimmy Governor was. What do we know about him?
2: It was thought that he was descended from Aboriginal people, but he also had Irish ancestors. From an early age, he and his brother Joe, and possibly also their father, did various farming jobs where they would build fences and other work on farms.
3: So we know he was a fencer, but do we know anything about any of his other jobs?
2: Like he was a police tracker at one point? Yeah, that's true. He was a police tracker. There were no roads, there were no communications and the landscape was something quite unfamiliar to white people and so they began to recruit Aboriginal people but of course quite soon afterwards police trackers became used as a tool of policing Indigenous peoples. Jimmy had found ways to
3: exist in the colony
2: until he did something quite radical
3: for Frontier Australia.
2: And so he was in his early 20s when he met and married a white woman, a white teenager really, called Ethel Page. They already had a small baby and she was already pregnant with a second child. So the archives were
3: able to tell us that Jimmy married Ethel and they had a growing family. But Catherine knew to better understand Jimmy's past, she needed to find a link to Jimmy's present.
2: So it was a Friday afternoon and by the time we got there it was quite dark. And, you know, when you arrive at an unfamiliar place in the dark, especially somewhere out in the bush... We didn't even know if we were in the right place. Catherine and I headed down to the
3: south coast of New South Wales to one of those tiny towns that's really just a petrol station on the side of the road.
2: I was really anxious or nervous because I felt like I was finally going to connect with someone who really owned this story in a personal way. It seemed very important to be respectful, to be consultative, and so I wanted to hold on to that fact, that this was not my story, this is not my family, and this is not my project to play with. It's not a toy and it belongs to another family.
4: Now, I am the great-granddaughter of Jimmy and Ethel, and as I speak about him... I want to be able to let people know that he was a real person.
3: This is Loretta Ethel Parsley, a Walbunja elder and custodian of country. She's a direct descendant of Jimmy and Ethel Governor and the family historian. We're at Loretta's home, which sits on 67 acres of sprawling landscape that she calls Middle Earth.
4: Ninjawa Mujingaw, I'd like to welcome you to the traditional lands of the Walbunja people. Pay our respects to us both past and present and acknowledge that we are on country and that when we leave all we leave is our footprints and we're here today to honour an ancestor.
3: We settled into an outdoor table with homemade damper and lily pilly jam.
4: Well how's the damper? It's delicious. Mm -hmm.
3: A lot of what Loretta tells us about Jimmy lines right up with the archives but has a depth we hadn't heard before.
4: Well, from the aunties and obviously they'd spoken to their mother who was married to Jimmy and that he was quite athletic and he played cricket and he was really handsome. He was out there in the community because he had the status of being a black tracker, the status of being married to a white woman. He did everything that most Aboriginal people of that period of time would never even consider. So to him, he was as equal to other people, regardless of skin colour. He was able to walk proudly in a community, and yet something happened. He was walking in the two worlds but he fell in love with a non-Aboriginal woman. And that changed everything.
3: In 1900, an Aboriginal man providing for his family wasn't easy. Many Aboriginal people had been pushed onto missions. Jimmy was working for the Morbys building fences.
4: That is a skill, putting a post into the ground, to be able to dig it. Now we wouldn't have had excavators or post hole diggers. It was all physical work. So you had to be strong.
3: Jimmy wasn't doing it alone. Catherine Byver tells us his little brother Joe was living with them and helped Jimmy build fences.
2: I think he was probably about two years younger than Jimmy Governor. We don't really have any records in which he speaks or in which his thoughts or even his existence is recorded in any meaningful way. He had travelled around where he could find work and he was living with Jimmy, Governor and Ethel at the time that the Morby family members were murdered.
3: Loretta reminds us that there was another Aboriginal man camping on the Morby property with Jimmy, Ethel and Joe, Jackie Underwood, and they all went on the run following the murders.
4: They were considered dogs. Because they murdered and natives were allowed to be killed and shot at any time. That was the expected thing. But then they had to be smarter. They had to think smarter on the run.
1: In the first six days of being on the run, the newspapers report that Jimmy and Joe Governor continued to kill in three separate attacks two men, a woman, her young child, and her unborn baby newspapers label them revenge killings. This is a new feeling for white Australia. The tables have been turned. The white man was the one being hunted. The Singleton Argus. 2nd of August, 1900. Several schools are closed. Everyone is armed. Above all is a feeling of impending calamity or the arrival of news of a fresh horror. A month later single Houses were empty, dogs were dying on the chains, and cows were sick with milk fever.
3: The brothers lead authorities on a 2,000-strong manhunt that spans 3,000 kilometres across western New South Wales.
2: They have great navigation skills, that they have enormous fitness, and that they have great capacity to survive in the bush. Just to see that landscape and to see the scale of the distances involved between different places, because you can look on a map and go off from here to here, that's 200 kilometres, and you think, OK, you can drive that. But that's a pretty long drive on not great roads. But imagine in 1900 in winter with no shoes on, walking that distance or running that distance.
3: Ethel Governor is captured in the early days of the chase and Jackie Underwood within the first week. At the inquest into the Morby killings, Ethel gives a statement. She says that Joe is innocent. Jimmy had forced Joe to go on the run, saying, Joe, you have to come with me or I'll take your life. We are bushrangers now. Loretta says it's likely that Joe would have followed Jimmy's lead.
4: He would have followed Jimmy to the end of the earth. Joe was Jimmy's brother and Jimmy was the leader. Being the older brother, he was the leader in the family. And Joe followed Jimmy.
3: With the newspapers reporting a death toll totalling nine and Jimmy and Joe still on the run, the question that remained was, what sparked the murders? Relying on 120-year-old sources can make facts murky, but often they're all we have, like Ethel Governor's account of what went wrong between the Governors and the Morbys.
2: She testifies that Mrs Morby and some of the other women and girls in the household had said she'd thrown herself away by marrying a black fellow, suggesting that she could have done better.
4: Ethel said to him that she was being taunted by the Morbys. Why waste your time on a black fellow? you know? She lived nowhere other than with the Aboriginal people. So she was considered no better than them in the establishment eyes. So when you get the two cultures that come together, petrol and matches, I call it, but when you've got two people who don't see that conflict because they're having a baby, they're in love.
3: This is a story Aunty Loretta
4: knows all too well. These two decided to challenge the establishment, the same as Trevor and I have. Loretta met her husband Trevor when she was still a teenager. They
3: fell in love, got married, and had to face the realities of being an interracial couple in 1970s Australia.
4: Because we were married in 1975, Trevor and I, So we were experiencing the racial establishment of Aboriginal people not being allowed into pubs, the social injustices. So I was asked to leave. So I wonder how many times Ethel and Jimmy were in a situation where people said, this is not acceptable, you are black. She is white. Being taunted, of course you go and talk to your husband. I would, because that's what you do. You talk to your partner.
3: So was it racial abuse that
2: made Jimmy snap? Catherine Biber says something else had happened not long before. It's hard to absolutely know what really sparked the first of the homicides. But there was an argument and we know that the relationship between... Jimmy Governor and the Morby family was an employment relationship that Jimmy and his family lived on the property. Uh, Jimmy was employed to build fences on the property and in exchange he would receive payment and rations. There's a
3: citation from the Daily Telegraph interview from the 24th of July, 1900, where Mr. Morby said that he rejected a hundred of the posts out of the thousand that were laid in the line of fence and offered to pay half price for them and then use them. But also in this article, Jimmy and his family owe Mr. Morby some money. So it's like whatever Jimmy is doing for work is not really keeping the family afloat. What do you make of that?
2: Yes, it's shocking that you can work so hard and still be in debt to your employer. I think that says a lot about frontier relationships between colonial settlers and Indigenous people on the frontier.
3: Sitting around the table at Auntie Loretta's, she was
4: excited to show us something Jimmy had made with his own hands. To people, you know, oh, it's just a bit of wood, you could throw it on the fire, but it's more than that to me.
3: Loretta has an original fence post made by Jimmy. It's been sitting wrapped in newspaper for over 20 years the same amount of time that Catherine has been researching this story. So how did Loretta come to have the post? Uh Uh-huh,
4: that's my little secret women's business. (laughs) Um, I have that because it was gifted to me. That fence post that sits in there, maybe we need to put it on the table to remind us that this was the catalyst. Do you want to open it?
2: Would you like me to?
4: Yes, please. Yeah, I'm giving you permission to open it. Yeah. That is wrapped up very well. (laughs) And I was waiting for one day that it would be unwrapped, and this is the day. This is one part of the post that Jimmy... Yeah, had put into the ground. So you can imagine going out, working, putting in fence posts for a family. And when you work, you expect to be paid. But they said it wasn't good enough and that he didn't deserve to be paid. He'd snapped. And the brain does. If you're deprived of food, things happen in your brain, yeah. And he didn't just have Ethel, he had his brother and he would have had his sister and his extended family. A lot of mouths to feed, a lot of commitment and a new baby, another mouth to feed.
2: Can I ask you another question about this post? Because I've been listening to you talk about its significance, that it symbolises his labour and injustice. But this is also a physical thing that was made by your ancestor. He touched it, he worked on it. And I wonder if that's also significant for you, that he made
4: this. Yes, and that's why I kept it wrapped for so long. It's been there and it's sat, but it still is something that my great-grandfather had worked with his fingers and his hands touching that, And that's why I asked you to open it, because you need to connect with this story. I've connected with this story for a long time. You're coming on this journey through me and Jimmy's memory and Ethel's.
1: It's the year 1900. Weeks become months and the Governor brothers remain on the run. Newspaper reports suggest the police are out of their depth. A stockman on the hunt for 81 days describes the chase. The Singleton Agus, 18th of October, 1900. In one place, it took us five hours to get to the top of a mountain. The horses frequently got hung up in the vines. We were for three days living on nothing but flour and water. The newspapers claim that the Governor brothers spent time writing notes taunting their pursuers. I am a bushranger. He who sees me first gets hell. Put this in the Sydney Mail so they can all see it. Sub-Inspector Cameron, Dubbo. I know you had 150 police at Woolar and 35 men at Golgong. I was reading all that news. Signed, Jim Governor. You dog. I shoot you. We will have your scalp. Jimmy Governor. And with that, the legend of the Governor Brothers took on a life of its own. One report stated they were observed walking on the top wire of a boundary fence in the early dawn. The governors could run for miles on the still ribbons of the railway line with no sign of their passing.
2: So every time somebody's hut is robbed, every time somebody's horse is stolen, the Governor Brothers are thought to be responsible for it. And every suspected sighting, every clue, every rumour is being published in local newspapers. And as time passes and as the Governor Brothers elude capture for longer and longer, that narrative sometimes becomes almost like a comedy of errors because we send out these soldiers in their crisp uniforms who don't know how to camp, they don't know how to ride horses properly and these people are just going to outsmart us.
3: With Jimmy and Joe on the loose for three months, pressure is put on the New South Wales government to bring an end to the manhunt once and for all. And so this case makes it all the way to the desk of the New South Wales Attorney-General... Bernard Wise, was the most senior law officer in the colony, was responsible for bringing the Governor Brothers to justice.
2: You know, until the governors were brought to justice, the colony would be a lawless place. But of course, also what's looming is federation, the making of a new nation.
3: This would have been a challenging situation for any lawmaker. But even with his status as Attorney General, Bernard Wise still felt like he had something to prove.
2: His father died and left the mother with hardly any money. So he was very lavishly educated, but always as the poor boy. So, you know, he was supposedly brilliant and with all this potential, but I think he also had some self-esteem issues. That's my own personal diagnosis. Um, Because even though he rose very high, he also had a lot of self-doubt. He thought that his life was a failure. I mean, was anything working for him? Look, Alfred Deakin described... Do you want me to read the quote? Sure. Alfred Deakin described him as being as handsome as the hero of a female novel, a Cupid with a rich, soft voice, a man of culture and of aristocratic tendencies who was a Democrat by conviction. What a dreamboat. And I've seen a photo of him, maybe tastes have changed. As
3: a poor boy reaching for greatness, what better way for Bernard Wise to prove himself than influencing the biggest issue of the time, Federation.
2: He was never an official member of the Federation conventions. Um, He's sometimes described as an uninvited guest. But the historical record suggests he was an influential figure, that he was actively involved in the drafting of documents that led to the constitution that we now have.
3: Federation was Australia's attempt to become a proper country and rise above its convict past. It was a chance for squabbling colonies to become a legitimate, unified nation. This made people ask, what kind of country do we want to live in? The stakes were high. With federation looming and the myth of the Governor Brothers growing daily, Bernard Wise is pushed towards a solution, one that he resists, because it hadn't been used in Australia since the bush-ranging days of Ned Kelly, Declare the Governor Brothers outlaws.
2: So broadly speaking... An outlaw is a person who has done something that doesn't entitle them to the protection of the law. And what that means is that if someone has done such a terrible crime and will not surrender to the law, then that person can be caught dead or alive.
3: So basically someone's been so abhorrent in their behaviour, it's like, you can be brought back dead or alive. We don't care. We just need to catch you.
2: That's right, because essentially the outlawry had already been a finding of guilt. It was a long time since anyone before them had been outlawed. And so the question of is outlawry the right response was tangled up with the question of would we outlaw people in a federated nation? Is that the way to bring felons to justice? Bernard Wise struggled with this decision. I feel like Wise would not be someone who would feel that outlawry is an appropriate process. Yeah, he's too much of a legal nerd to be like, yep, let's just shoot them without a trial. That's right. So every time someone said, let's outlaw them, let's outlaw them, he kept pushing back and saying, this is not the way. They need to be brought to justice. The idea that you bring someone to justice and don't just shoot them in the bush, I think if you're the Attorney General, that's a pretty important thing to have on the record. Bringing people to justice is an important part of your job. But with the
3: chase having no end in sight and public pressure mounting, Bernard Wise caved.
2: But why? The archive doesn't record what? caused him to change his mind. I guess at some point he remembers that he's a politician. It's clear that he was under a lot of pressure. The longer the Governor brothers were at large, the more there was public debate, there was political debate, there were questions being asked in Parliament. It was becoming a problematic political issue as well as causing a lot of unrest, particularly amongst people who lived on the frontier and who were living in fear of their own lives. There was really torrid newspaper reporting whilst the governors were at large. And so people were afraid. The members of the public were afraid. And politicians were alive to that fear and were concerned. Sorry, just on that, I've actually got the proclamation of Outlawry. Do you want me to read it? Or I can show you, just... By his excellency, the Right Honourable William Earl Beecham, Knight Commander of the Most Distinguished Order of St. Michael and St. George. This could take a while. And declared to be an outlaw by the said honourable Matthew Henry Stephen, and in the sixty-fourth year of Her Majesty's reign, by his excellency's command, B. R. Wise, God save the Queen. And with that, their fate was sealed. The Governor brothers were declared
3: outlaws wanted dead or alive.
1: Six days before being proclaimed an outlaw, Jimmy is shot in the mouth by a local hunter while sneaking into a hut. The bullet passes through his cheek, destroying four teeth. Another bullet hits his hip. Jimmy and Joe manage to escape, but the damage is done. While crossing the Forbes River, someone starts shooting at them. In the head of the chase, They separate. This may be the last time they see each other. Alone with a hole in his mouth and food hard to find, Jimmy steals some tucker from a camp and falls asleep beside the fire. Before daybreak, a group of civilians call upon him to surrender. He attempts to flee, but on the 99th day of the manhunt, more than 450 kilometers from the Morby home, Jimmy Governor is captured and taken to the local police officer. Joe's whereabouts are unknown.
3: Next time on The Last Outlaws. Can Joe continue to elude the 2,000 strong search party? And what will happen to Jimmy now that he's been
4: captured? Jimmy wanted to take the fall for what happened because it was his family.
1: I am speaking straight from my heart. And I am afraid of nobody.
3: And Catherine Byber makes a discovery that takes us inside Jimmy's prison cell.
2: So just like we don't know why the diary was ever kept, we also don't know why the diary ever stopped.
0: The Last Outlaw series is made by Impact Studios at the University of Technology Sydney, an audio production house funded by the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research. The Last Outlaws was made on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, as well as the Wabunja people of the Ewan Nation, Darug people of Nangara country and Gabigabi country, whose land was never ceded. Impact Studios would like to pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging, acknowledging them as the traditional custodians of knowledge on this land. Thanks to everyone who made this series possible, including the Governor family descendants and the Parsley and Parsons families, especially Auntie Loretta Parsley and Leroy Parsons. Thanks also to our UTS partners, the Faculty of Law, the Australian Centre for Public History, Jumbana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research, as well as the Australian Research Council. Our wonderful Chief Investigator is Law Professor Catherine Biber. And, of course, the team at Impact Studios. Caitlin Sawry is the host, writer and senior producer. Frank Lopez, writer, senior producer, composer and sound engineer. The role of narrator was voiced and co-written by Leroy Parsons. Alison Chan was our producer, researcher and fact-checker. Ben Vozzo is the digital communications manager. Belinda Lopez is our editorial advisor. Thank you to our cultural consultants at Jumbana, Institute for Indigenous Education and Research, especially Professor Daryl Rigney and Distinguished Professor Larissa Barant as well as Dr. Lyndon Ormond-Parker, an honorary senior lecturer at the Centre for Heritage and Museum Studies at the Australian National University. Additional production by Ryan Pemberton and additional sound supplied by Camilla Hannan. Additional sound engineering by Martin Peralta. Jake Dzinski from Studio Hackett created our incredible digital artworks for the series and original artwork, Blood on His Hands, Cleansed by Saltwater, was supplied by Auntie Loretta Parsley. And there are many minds that made The Last Outlaws possible. A big thank you to everyone we spoke to and those who answered all our fact-checking questions, including Jimmy Kyle, Dr Katie Gilchrist, the New South Wales State Library, Laurie Perry, James Wilson Miller, Sheila Johnson, the Gilgandra Local Aboriginal Land Council, Dr Claire Britton, Deborah Beck, the National Arts School, Nathan Sentence from the Australian Museum, Dr Murat Kekik at Ainsworth Interactive Collection of Medical Pathology, and Emirates Professor Paul Turnbull at the University of Tasmania. Thanks also to the deadly team at TIBA in the Darwin Studio, Lee Hewitt, Brendan Barlow and Bernard Namok. Voiceover artists are Andrew McRae and Tom Allenson. The executive producer of Impact Studios is Emma Lancaster. Managing directors of Impact Studios during production were Associate Professor Thameson Peach and Associate Professor Anna Clark. Thanks for listening.